Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Impunity Observer podcast. I hope you're all doing great. This is your host for the day, Mauro Echeverria. Nicolás Virsi will be the guest joining us today. And Nicolás is a professor of international relations and geopolitics in Central America. Today, we're going to discuss a series of topics in which Prosecutor General selection process is included, involvement from outsiders, pressure from other actors, the Erika Ifan case, and many of other topics. So welcome, Nicolas. Please tell us, how are you? Uh, great. Uh, Mauro, th uh, thanks for the invitation. It's an honor to be here with Impunity Observer. It's a great outlet, and I hope this reaches many people. And I salute and greet all your followers. Thank you, Nicolas. So right now we're currently witnessing the selection process for the position of Prosecutor General and Head of the Public Ministry. The process is currently in the exclusion phase, so it is fundamental to remember that uh, the current Prosecutor General, Consuelo Porras, is still in the race. So how have you perceived this current process? Has it been transparent? Uh, no, it hasn't been transparent at all. The process for the selection of Attorney General is that a slate has to be presented, a slate of, of six candidates has to be presented to the president by the Congress, if I'm not mistaken, it has to be six. And for the Congress to, to make that selection, it comes from a postulation commission, a commission which proposes the candidates and filters the candidates. And in that process, participate the deans of law schools of the different universities in Guatemala. And it's very well known You, although it's there's no concrete evidence to it, but it's very well known that it happens. I've talked to many deans, and they receive pressure from the United States State Department to vote a certain way. And that's not a transparent process at all. What they tell you in Guatemala is that they're fighting anti they're, they're fighting corruption, which is fine because nobody agrees with corruption. But what they do, what they don't tell you is they want to eliminate due process in every step of the way. That, that is why the ex-prosecutors uh, aligned with uh, the U.S. State Department, which was and aligned with the U.N. Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, which was known as CC, and the special prosecutor known as FESI, the special prosecutor's office, it, they when they were in charge and they were running the show, they would throw people in preventive prison with no bail And just and the longer somebody fought for their due process rights and exercised their rights of self-defense in a, in a criminal trial, the longer they would spend in jail. The, this has not happened with all of the ex-prosecutors uh, from FESI, but it has happened to some. But others are free on bail, unlike the people they prosecute. So the problem here is the lack of due process. In my opinion, they should all be free on bail. The abuse of the preventive prison process is the problem in Guatemala. So as soon as somebody confronts justice for whatever reason, they flee. Now, the U.S. State Department and its aligned media outlets and aligned international NGOs, they call them exiles. They're exiled in the United States. No, they're fugitives from justice. That's the technical term. And one can understand that because nobody wants to fight their case from jail. Well, they didn't understand it when they were in power, and that's no reason to apply it to them. There should be due process available to everybody. That's the Republican form of government. That's how you form an independent judicial branch. When they say that they're fighting corruption and they want to sustain and form an independent judicial branch, they mean independent of the, the Guatemalan president, which is fine. That's how it should be. 
but they never mean independent from foreign interference. That's not what they mean. And right now, the United States government is, is very desperate to control the selection process of the attorney general because they have, in their perception, or in the perception of the extreme left in Guatemala, which is only allied with the United States on this issue, because the extreme left in Guatemala is typically looks more towards Russia, Venezuela, Cuba, uh, China. You know, there, there's some strange uh, politics makes for strange bedfellows. You know, there's this, the hard left supports this, what's called in Spanish, the lucha contra la corrupción, because they see it as a way of cleaning house of all their political rivals. It's not that they're not corrupt and it's not that they're for integrity and in government. That's not the case at all. You know, but and they don't mind U.S. interference in the judicial process. They don't mean independence, true independence. They mean reliance on U.S. imposition. The U.S., the perception is that they lost the constitutional court. They lost the attorney general and they cannot afford to lose the attorney general again. So they're, they're left without many options in, in Guatemala. Look what happened in Nicaragua, in Nicaragua and Honduras. I'm sorry. There's reason to believe there's there are very good arguments that the board of directors, if that's how you call it in English, the Junta Directiva of the Honduran Congress is illegitimate because of the way it was constituted and they just passed laws. Uh, against corruption, but before that, and they're going to form a new UN commission against corruption, but before that, they granted amnesty to all those who were in the government of the, of Shamara Castro's husband, Mel Salaya, when he was president. So first they give amnesty to their guys, and then they want to launch a UN corruption commission to go out and clean house against uh, functionaries of the uh, last uh, few right-wing governments, which were corrupt, by the way. Why do you think there's this interference over Central American countries in general from the U.S.? The, the, the argument is that corruption impedes economic growth, and without economic growth, then you have the surge in migration to the United States, that first you clean corruption, then you get economic growth, and then you reduce migration. Historically, that's not what, what's happened. Historically, countries grow first. As they grow, they create a middle class. The middle class is what sustains democracy. The middle class, they have a little bit of wealth that matters a lot to them. So they start pressuring governments to apply equal justice and general, generally applicable laws. That's what's happened in every case of development in the world. There's a, no one's justifying corruption, but they have it backwards. And then there's another lie to the U.S. strategy, which is, OK, it's true that lack of economic opportunities explain migration, illegal immigration. They don't even call it illegal immigration anymore. They call it irregular migration when it's clearly breaking U.S. laws on the books. It's true that lack of economic opportunities drive a certain part, drive a certain part of illegal immigration. But that's not what's causing the border crisis in the United States right now. What's causing the border crisis in the United States is the fact that the Biden administration in its first week or month in office removed all border controls. And basically, during the campaign, both Kamala Harris and Joe Biden uh, made it clear that they weren't going to enforce 
American migration laws on the books. And that's in violation of the constitutional oath of office that the president and the vice president take. The, the United States Constitution says, shall enforce the laws, shall. That means they must enforce the laws on the books, and they're not doing that. They're doing everything but that. And not only that, migrants now know if they get to the United States, not only will they not be deported, they will be given jobs, they will be given access to free education, they will be given access to health care. So everyone's, that's what explains the gigantic surge in migration. The average monthly detain, uh, detentions at the U.S. southern border are above 160,000, 170,000 a month from March till this March of 2021 to this month. That's more than double than the year before, maybe even triple. There were some months where you had in 2020 where you had 30 to 60,000, 70,000 per month. That, that, that's the migration that's due to push factors. Push factors are local endogenous factors that arise from the defects in the local economy that create a lack of economic, uh, economic opportunities and the most ambitious people migrate. The pull factors are the errors in policy and lack of uh, uh, migration law enforcement on the part of U.S. authorities that basically invites everyone to come. The greatest increase in migrants to the United States are coming from other countries that have nothing to do with the Northern Triangle, which is Honduras, El Salvador, and, and Guatemala. They're coming from all over the world now. Uh, actually, they, they suspended, they recently suspended the free travel from Ecuador to Guatemala, and Mexico, due to illegal immigration from Guatemala, from Ecuadorians to the US. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I wanted to know, I wanted you to clarify, what is the G13 and what does it do in Guatemala? Uh, the G13 is a, it's a self-appointed group of uh, the principal embassies that stick their nose in Guatemala's business. It's the United States, Canada, Sweden, uh, the United Kingdom, France, Italy, Spain, um, and other countries that comment constantly that, that one, provide official development assistance to, to Guatemala. And based on that assistance, they want to condition Guatemala. This happens all over the world. They want to condition the political scene in Guatemala. There's, it leads many to question whether that it's even worth that money. For example, there's, they pressure the Guatemalan government to adopt not democratic policies, but progressive policies. It, it, there's, and this happens in Latin America, curiously enough, it would never happen in the United States where the, the United States Constitution is supreme. But the way they interpret it in Guatemala, for example, is that if Guatemala signs an international treaty that, that pertains in some way, shape or form to human rights, and that treaty conflicts with the national constitution, the international treaty takes precedence. Where am I going with this? The Guatemalan constitution recognizes the right to life from the moment of conception. The Guatemalan constitution recognizes matrimony as between a man and a woman. So when you define that, when you define abortion as, a, uh, as access to health as a human right, then they're going to try to backdoor their way in, uh, making abortion legal in Guatemala, even when they know that the population would never vote for it. There's, that's just one type of example that uh, these G13 and the United Nations and other uh, international organizations 
push on Guatemala. And it's really lamentable because they say, for example, the UN program for, for development says it wants to promote development in various countries of the third world, but they push agendas, social welfare agendas, that the rich countries only adopted once they were rich. They didn't have them when they were on their way to development. So if you increase the minimum wage, for example, if you increase taxes beyond a prudent amount, you're going to restrain growth. You're not going to activate growth. And growth is the key to development. It's not synonymous with development, but it is a necessary, if not sufficient, condition. The poverty rate in the world has been tremendously, the extreme poverty rate in the world was 40% of the world's population in 1990. By 2010, it was down to 10%. China got half of those people out of poverty. And I don't know if, if you saw the latest uh, news article on China's great social programs. If you didn't, don't be surprised because I haven't either. It doesn't exist. China got millions of people, tens of millions of people out of poverty based on pure economic growth. And that's what Guatemala needs and other countries like Guatemala. But that is not what these the G13 in alliance with the United Nations and other groups push on countries such as Guatemala. They want to push social welfare benefits, which are inappropriate at this stage of Guatemalan development. It's it's completely anti-technical. Understood. And is this intervention legal or illegal? No, it's legal. It's legal, but that doesn't make it right. What local countries need to do, Guatemala, El Salvador, is start expulsing, expelling some of these diplomats that comment on inter internal affairs of their countries. It's understood that foreign policy is handled prudently, quietly, firmly, uh, sometimes arrogantly, behind closed doors. But when you make public declarations on what Guatemalan officials need to do or what the Guatemalan Congress needs to do, that's interfering in local politics, and that's in violation of the ambassador's manual. You know, it, it says right there that ambassadors uh, shall not interfere in domestic affairs. China doesn't do it. Russia doesn't do it, but the United States and the G13 countries do it all the time, which is diminishing their soft power. When, when the liberal world order was constructed after World War II, the United States had a lot of soft power because it pushed market, free markets and democracy all over the world, and everybody wanted that. But not everybody wants 127 genders. Not everybody wants uh, abortion. Not everybody wants same-sex marriage, like the progressive. It's not even a consensus in the United States. So the United States has no business pushing it on other countries. In the Islamic world, for example, in Africa, they're strongly against it. And in Latin America, many countries are against it also. Who besides the U.S. Embassy and the G13 are trying to interfere? Are there other groups? Are there insiders like people in Guatemala? They have their local affiliates, uh, agents that work on their behalf. And it's funny because they're all left-wing activists, even the journalists. And they're, they're not pro-American. They're not pro-American at all. They're always rooting against the United States for absolutely everything. They just see this fight against corruption as an opportunity to clean house with their political rivals. But if, if you see that, for example, Guatemala is a very loyal ally to the United States. On, uh, Guatemala is one of the few countries in the world that still maintains relations with Taiwan, which is very important to the United States. 
Only one country, Paraguay in South America, still maintains diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Nicaragua just cut them off. Honduras was about to. Shamara Castro promised to do it during her campaign, and she backed off when the, the United States government made some kind of offer, which I assume has to do with this UN Commission Against Corruption after the amnesty that was granted to, to her political base, to her husband's political base. The, um, their local allies are in, the, are in the media. There's a whole uh, local network that, of local media that provides stories to the Washington Post and the New York Times. And once it's published in the United States, they say, see, it's being published in the United States, and they replicate it here in Guatemala. And, and it's clearly being orchestrated by, by the United States. It's the journalists that, that are invited to U.S. government functions uh, that are retweeted by current and former uh, U.S. representatives. But it's, it's a farce, really. But the, the, the main actors that interfere are, are the G13 countries and uh, the United Nations and NGOs like uh, Human Rights Watch, for example, the, um, uh, the Washington Office for Latin American Affairs, WOLA, and uh, all these other groups that align with the United States in criticizing conservative governments that they perceive to be on the right of the political spectrum in Latin America. Participating in that facade is our groups like Freedom House uh, and these, these organizations that attempt to qualify on a numeric scale the quality of democracy in different countries. Their Freedom House does it, the Economist Intelligence does it, uh, Econ Economist Intelligence Unit, they also have an index of democracy. The Polity Project in the United States um, is financed by the CIA. Freedom House is financed by the United States government. The variety, there's an institute in, in Europe, I believe Sweden, that's called the, the VDEM, Varieties of Democracy Institute. They're financed by Soros and in some parts by USAID. And what they're really qualifying is not, it's one thing to qualify a country as democratic or not based on whether they have free and fair elections. It's another thing, so that's either a yes or a no. It's another thing to say you have a six on a zero to 10 scale, or you have 50 on a zero to 100 scale in terms of your quality of democracy. And what they're grading there is how progressive countries are. For example, lack of support for public sector unions has been mentioned by Freedom House as democratic backsliding. Lack of support for the LBGTQ uh, agenda has been classified as democratic backsliding. Lack of support for same-sex marriage has been classified as democratic backsliding. Now, this is not to say that countries should or should not adopt those different policies, but clearly different countries have different cultural and political preferences, and that will be reflected in, their politi in the political outcomes that emanate from the political system. So an objective measure of democracy should not take those things into account because different countries have different uh, political preferences. Like we say in the United States, elections matter, but it seems not to matter to the qualifiers of democracy that are funded by the United States government. By the way, Richard Hanania, uh, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, has two excellent articles uh, on this. I forget their names, but I encourage people to read them. What do you think about the case of Judge Eric Kaifan? 
in, in Guatemala. I believe I'm not an expert on her case. She's being accused of redirecting cases to her own court so she could dispose of the judicial proceedings and find people innocent or guilty as the case may be. That's the accusation. She deserves her day in court and she deserves to be free on bail while she confronts the case against her. That's not the benefit of the doubt that she and other ex-CC-aligned prosecutors, that's not what they practiced. Now, she's accused of assigning cases to herself without the approval of the Camara Penal, which is the penal chamber in Guatemala, and that's required. So when you, when you circumvent that requisite, that prerequisite, you're violating due process of law because it's like, give me these cases. I have a personal interest in these cases. I want to be the judge in these cases. That's incorrect. She she needs to face, there's, there's evidence of that. I don't know if the evidence is sufficient to convict, but she should confront justice in Guatemala free on bail. That is not a benefit of the doubt that was granted to the people accused while she was in power when CC and Fessy were still operating under the influence of the United States government. Right. Um, I think she's fleeing the United States. She's claiming she... They call her an exile, not a fugitive from justice. The same thing with Del Maldana, the same thing with Juan Francisco Sandoval, and many others. There's... I don't know if they're guilty or not, but they should... When they were in power, they said... He who, he who owes nothing should fear nothing. But as soon as, they, it, it, as soon as they lost their immunity, they fled the country because they feared the same, the same politicized judicial system that they created. Now, that, there, there's, they should have nothing to fear, but I would understand why, because of what they themselves practiced when they were in power. But for that reason, it is not correct to put them in jail while they fight their case. It's like they're trying to get away from what they have been practicing while they were in power. Uh, yeah, that, that's exactly right. And they criticized anybody that was a fugitive from justice when they were in power. You know, they are technically fugitives. If, you run, if you're accused and you run away to another country, you're a fugitive from justice. You're not in exile. You're a fugitive from justice. It's this Orwellian play on words that comes from the United States. In the United States government, they're not illegal immigrants anymore. They're undocumented workers. Well, no, they're illegal immigrants. They're not migrants. They're refugees so that they can ask for asylum. The huge increase in border apprehensions at the southwest border between the United States and Mexico is not due to increased efficiency by the Customs and Border Patrol. It's totally the opposite. Many years ago, when illegal immigrants crossed the border, They would flee from Customs and Border Patrol. Now they go and turn themselves in directly so they can begin collecting the benefits and get the work permits. So, you know, there, there's it's this play on words. You know, it's it's an undocumented worker. It's not an illegal immigrant. It's an exile. It's not a fugitive from justice. There's and in this process uh, right now, the narrative is being uh, promoted in Guatemala that somehow the private sector has something to do with the removal of Judge Eric Ifan. There's no evidence to that effect, but that's what they say. The, the ex-ambassador of the United States to Guatemala, Stephen McFarland, retweeted something like that when it makes this calumny, calumny, this smear against the private sector, 
Well, then there's no evidence for that at all. The private sector plays no role whatsoever in the selection of attorney general, in the removal of judges, or in the placement of justice. It, it plays no role, and it should play no role. Now, part of the narrative that's being moved by Human Rights Watch, uh, left-wing NGOs, left-wing media activists, and by current State Department officials at a high level, is that they are reviewing sanctions authorities against Guatemalan businessmen, specifically the organized private sector. Now, why they singled out the organized, anybody that has been engaged in corrupt practices should confront justice. I, I want to be very clear about that. But why would you single out the organized private sector for that without evidence, and you don't provide evidence? Now, it's very well known that the United States government is exercising pressure constantly on private sector actors regarding the attorney general when when the private sector plays no role. And if it did, that would be illegal and improper for private sector leaders to get themselves involved in the process. And when they talk about sanctioning authorities in this way, and the way this, I believe his name is Juan Papier uh, from Human Rights Watch, the guys on, on Twitter, I call him Papier Maché, you know, he's a, he's a paper tiger, this guy. There, there's, I don't know, he created his account, I believe, in December 2021, and he's constantly calling for the sanctioning of Guatemalan business elites. The argument there, and it's also moved by the United States State Department, is has two implicit, two, the, the argument has, uh, has two implicit pillars, either when they're talking about sanctioning private sector leaders, either they have something on certain private sector leaders to justify a case against them, but they will not proceed with the case if the private sector illegally pressures the government to appoint uh, an attorney general that's aligned with the U.S. political preferences. That's one. Two is they don't have evidence, but sanctioning is not some, is a political is a political move. Sanctions are a political decision. They don't come. They don't emanate from a court of law. So they know you. I can sanction you if I was a high placed State Department official. I can sanction Mauro, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't fight your case in court because it's a political designation. Whereas if I did it in court, you would get due process, what little due process is left in the United States. Well, I shouldn't say that, but it, uh, due process is under attack in the United States. And people look at that and see the politicization of the system of justice in the United States. And they say, I don't want to see that here in Guatemala or in other countries. But if you're accused in court in the United States, you are entitled to see all the evidence against you and present your own case against that evidence. That is not what happens when you are politically designated by the State Department as a person who engages in corrupt acts. It's simply you're designated. So the, the implicit, argu implicit argument only leads to the conclusion that the United States is practicing lawfare or selective justice. Because once again, I'll break it down. Either I have something on you, but I won't use it against you, if you pressure the government to name an attorney general to my liking, or I don't have evidence against you, but I will politically designate you anyway, because you have no recourse in a court of law. What is, can you explain us the, what is the angle list? The angle list is, it was named after a United States Congressman, Elliot Engel, who is no longer in Congress. 
He was voted out during the primaries during the last election, and he was replaced by Jamal Bowen, Bauman in New York. But that's where they create a list of these corrupt actors, and those the people on that list are eligible to be sanctioned by the U.S. State Department. So they're constantly uh, making reference to this Engels list, if they and if they have evidence, strong evidence of corruption by anybody, by all means, they should apply it. But they're using it politically. They're, they're waving around sanctions. Look, we're going to do sanctions unless A, B, and C happens. Well, that's the very definition of politicization of justice. If you have evidence against people, use it and bring the case and bring the case in court where there will be due process and let them fight it out. And if you're condemned, you go to jail. But they don't want to do this because they don't want to lose cases in court because I, I, I suspect the cases aren't as strong against business leaders as they claim or they want to make people believe. They're, this is a political show. There's, for example, part, a corollary, a corollary. This is not moved so explicitly by the United States government, but it is moved by all its allies that somehow the organized private sector is in cahoots with narco traffic and those very corrupt actors. That's not true. The political class is one thing in Guatemala. The narco is another, and the organized private sector is another. And there's very little connection between the organ. There's no connection between the organized private sector and the narcos, for example. But that that's a, a that's a political smear that's constantly repeated by the left in Guatemala. The left that is in alliance with the United States State Department. All right. Any last message for our audience? Uh, keep in tune. I'm going to start contributing articles on a regular basis. Um, I'm proud to participate with Impunity Observer, and uh, I hope you guys give me a look. Thank you. All right. Thank you, everyone.